Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn and sit back and enjoy the show. So the Royal Tenenbaums came out in 2001. It was a Christmas release up against Fellowship of the Ring and a number of other very successful films, and it really cemented Wes Anderson as a voice people were interested in. So it's the story of the Tenenbaum family, who are a family of geniuses. And Wes Anderson said in an interview, he originally conceived the movie as an exploration of what it would be like, well, like an exploration of geniuses, and as he worked on it, it ended up being an exploration more of family. So the Tenenbaums live in a big house in Brooklyn. And that's where most of the movie takes place. It's a very central set piece, which gets back to what we were talking about him being a preserving for. We really explore this house in detail. And the walls yes. are all painted vivid colors, and there's rich wood, and it's a big house, and there's brick on the outside, and it's iron fencing, and it's very elaborate. It's the kind of house that is catnip to any preserving type, particularly a preserving for. I think this is where Wes Anderson really finds his aesthetic vision in this movie, right? Yeah. It was there in Rushmore, but it wasn't as clearly defined as it is in the Royal Tannenbaums, I felt. Well, he had more control over the environment. Yes. So, you know, yes. Rushmore had been enough of a success that he was given a bigger budget and just more ability to explore and just take things further. I think he was also just developing more confidence as an artist. It was his third film. So you can see this ascent if you watch his movies in chronological order of bottle rocket and then rushmore we didn't have as big of a budget he didn't have as much control and then royal tenenbaums he really came into his own in a number of ways that being one of them yeah, yeah. so right. the patriarch of the family is named royal tenenbaum played by gene hackman he's a lawyer and he left the family decades before and has been living in a hotel he was disbarred and is broke and is about to be booted from the hotel the matriarch is played by Angelica Houston. The character's name is Ethelene, often called Ethel, and she's an archaeologist as well as a bridge teacher. Her accountant is Henry Sherman, played by Danny Glover, who proposes to Ethel near the beginning of the movie. They have three adult children who all live away from home and then all return home for various reasons. So Ben Stiller plays the eldest, Chaz, who's a business genius, who became rich and famous for his wealth as, I think, a 10-year-old. You know, it's never quite clear how old the kids are in that early scene in the movie where it shows what they were like when they were a kid. Yeah, he devised his... He bred Dalmatian mice, and then he also <laughs> bought property, and it was him that got his father disbarred. So he was wearing a suit. He had his own rack of rotating rack of identical ties, and he would wear a different one every yes. day, and he took it very seriously. And Gwyneth Paltrow is Margot, the adopted middle child. She's a playwright who achieved a lot of success as a playwright. She's married to Bill Murray's character, Raleigh Sinclair, who is a famous neurologist. I think every character other than Gene Hackman's character in this movie has written a book or written multiple books. That's something that comes up right. again and again. And the framing device of this is a book called The Royal Tannenbaums, which seems to be a novel. It's narrated by Alec Baldwin. So every segment opens with a new chapter of the book. We see that page, the opening page of that chapter, we can read the first sentence, which sets up what we're about to see. So the implication is that there's a book written about the Tannenbaums, probably fictional, and the author is telling us this story. So yet again, we've got that theme of the meta level of the movie. You know, you're being reminded that somebody is telling you this story in a really particular way. Luke Wilson plays Richie, who's a former world tennis champion, whose career just fell to pieces when he had a meltdown, which we find out later reason why that happened and he's been traveling the world on a ship ever since and owen wilson plays eli who's a neighbor who's a successful novelist of westerns and who's having a secret affair with margo and is also increasingly spiraling into oblivion drug addict so royal to find some place to live fakes having cancer in order to lie his way back into the family home, just to give him some time to get back on his feet and while he's there he re-engages with his family and my guess about him is that he's an eight. He really does like having control. He wants to feel powerful. He likes being the patriarch of the family, but he's been absent from them for a long time. So he starts interacting with them in really vivid ways. The story, his, the pretense of having cancer just explodes, and he's booted out. And without going into detail, I'm sure we'll get into this, but 
eventually the family works through their differences and they do come back together as a family. So it's a huge ensemble. There's a yes. big cast and, you know, there's significant actors in every role. Every role is important. Everybody has a thing. Everybody has an area of expertise. Everybody has written a book. Everybody's book has been successful. They all have their own particular things and they're all messed up in their own particular ways. Yes. And circumstances, yes. like I said, conspire to move them all into the same house, which is a big part of yes. why the whole movie, not the whole movie, but a lot of the movie takes place in that one environment that we explore pretty thoroughly, which is a real house. It wasn't done in the soundstage. Oh, really? Oh, I see that. I didn't know. Interesting. Yeah. So about the actors, you're, you're absolutely right. There were some, you know, Danny Glover, Angelica Houston, Gene Hackman, Ben Stiller, uh, others. Also, we're starting to see the repetition of some of the character actors, such as Pagoda, right? The uh, guy, um, let's see if I, can, if I can find his name right here, a guy named Kumar Palana, who... I doubt he's an actor, right? I don't know where that guy came from, right? But he was in Rushmore. And it's, I think he played the uh, groundskeeper. And he, here he's back as the, uh, I don't know, butler slash, you know, assistant, uh, you know, whatever he is in this movie. And spy for Royal, you know, who's, you know, he's been spying on the family for Royal all along. This movie reinforced me watching it again, what an amazing actor Gene Hackman is, right? I mean, we saw him last time in Unforgiven, and he gave in one of his best performances there. But rewatching The Royal Tannenbaums, I, I was just in awe of Gene Hackman as an actor in this. He was able to, he, he's an awful person, right? He's lying about, uh, you know, about having cancer, right? He's, he's clearly racist, right? I mean, his, his relationship, you know, with Danny Glover, some of the comments to him, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, and, you know, which kind of brings up a theme of uncomfortable themes in Russ Anderson movies that I don't know could be made today. Right. With, you know, some of the things that he says to the Danny Glover character, I don't think, you know, like, are you talking to me, Coltrane sort of thing? You know, it's like, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, you want to drive out, you know, and so it's like, mm, right. So he's an unlikable, I mean, on paper, at least, profoundly unlikable human being. His relationship with his adopted daughter is terrible, right? I mean, you know, she puts on a play when she's a child and, you know, and it's with, you know, characters dressed up as animals. And afterwards, she says to him, so what did you think? And he said, yeah, it was okay. I don't think the characters were fully developed. I didn't find it believable. He hands his 11-year-old daughter's play that she staged on her birthday. Yes, and in a yeah. beautifully fourish moment, because I believe Margot really is a, almost a oh caricature of a four. Oh my goodness! Played by yes. Gwyneth Paltrow. So as as he just brutally pans her creative effort on her eleventh birthday, she gets up and walks away while everybody is singing "Happy Birthday" and looks back twice, glaring, just yes. completely hurt. Another element to that is she's adopted, and they mention that he always mentions that this is Margot, my adopted <laughs> daughter. So let's, let's just remind you that you're not really one yes. of this family and that she disappeared for a couple of weeks when she was 14 to find her biological family. And when she came back, she was missing half of a finger. So we yes. find out later that that happened when she did find her family and it just happened with an accident when the father of that family was chopping wood and chopped off part of her finger. So that finger was replaced with a wooden prosthetic, <laughs> which at one point you can hear her tapping, I think against the edge of a bathtub as this constant yes. reminder of... I'm wounded. I'm yes. different. I'm maimed. Yes. And when somebody asks her, did you try to sew the finger back on? She says, eh, wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the absolute stereotype of the wounded, dark, brooding four. She had secrets. She would disappear. Nobody knew where she went. She was married at one point that nobody knew about. She'd been a lifelong smoker and nobody knew. And all these things that were just mysterious and dark and secret about her. She's always sullen. She's wearing dark eye makeup. She's a playwright. She's a successful playwright at that. And, and in, in the resolution of the movie, you see that she's written her newest play after a long absence, because that's part of her character at the beginning of the movie. She hasn't written a play in seven years. But then she writes a new yes. play, and it includes the line where a father says, this is my adopted daughter. And of course, Royal and the audience is delighted by that. And something that I just thought was wonderful is in the narration, it said, the play ran for two weeks to mixed reviews. So instead of, <laughs> instead of giving her a big victory at the end by writing this triumph that everybody loves about her dysfunctional family, 
eh, it's actually a failure. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I think on this, Alec Baldwin was the perfect narrator for this. I mean, you you know, it's one of those things where you think, oh, anybody could have done that. But boy, uh, who would you have placed in that? Or can you think of anybody you would have placed in that role who would have narrated and been a more pitch perfect narrator for the tone of this movie? I I thought that was really inspiring casting. I can't imagine anyone better. But yes, as you were saying, Royal is a pretty despicable character. But his arc throughout is that he's eventually redeemed. And one of the yes. moments that hit me in the heart, the very first time I saw this in the theater, when I initially didn't like it, which I now wonder what I was thinking, because I just love it now. But there's a moment after his pretense of having had cancer has exploded, when just about as he's about to leave, he turns and says to the family, you know, these last six days of interacting with all of you have probably been the best six days of my life. And Alec yeah. Baldwin, as the narrator, comes in and says, as soon as Royals said these words, he realized they were true. Mm. And that just really melted my heart to hear that here's this big loud deceitful racist absent father for decades insensitive brutal you know unaware of the name of his son chaz's dead wife like it's just a checklist of every bad thing a father can be and then you see him just melt of with love and engagement with his kids and with his grandkids And then he turns around completely, which again, I think gets back to something we were talking about with Rushmore is in some ways, this movie is like a fantasy created by a four of what if my awful, insensitive, absent father were to come back and apologize for what a shit he's been my entire life? What if he was to suddenly be supportive and kind and generous and say the exact things that you would want a good father to say? And do it because he finally realized how wonderful I am. Right. 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 And not just because, you know, life changed him or anything like that, but he was finally able to see how special I am and how deserving of love I am. Right. I agree. A tremendously tender moment. And again, we have this idea of, you know, it's a comedy yeah, with some real darkness. I mean, the Luke Wilson, uh, the bomber, the, the brother who was the tennis champion, tries to commit suicide because he realizes that he is, you know, in love with his, uh, or he knew he was in love with his adopted sister, but I think it occurred to him that this love will never, you know, be requited, you know, that it's not to be. And so he's standing there in front of the mirror and he says, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. I think he says, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow, but then slices his wrists at that moment. Right away. Yeah. And at, this is after shaving his head and shaving his beard. And the whole scene is set to the music of Elliot Smith, the song Needle in the Hay. And Elliot Smith, I'm quite certain, is a four himself, who took his own life a couple of years after this movie came out in a particularly brutal oh, way. He stabbed oh, himself in the heart with glass. Oh, so my gosh. His music, his entire body of music, is suffused with fourish melancholy and uniqueness. He was an incredible songwriter and guitar player and sometimes played in his own tunings. And his music is incredibly sad. He was Oscar nominated for a song that he did for Goodwill Hunting. I think three of his songs were used in that. So yeah, it's an incredibly affecting sequence in Royal Tannenbaums. And it's not just that he, he realizes his unrequited love will never be requited, but that she's been having an affair with Eli, the family friend under his nose the entire time. And there's nothing he can do about it. Yes. Fortunately, he survives, okay, and ends up, you know, kind of coming to some resolution about the whole situation. And, you know, you know there is this sort of uh, healing that happens. Even the uh, Ben Stiller character, the son who is the most hostile toward Royal, you know, very, very aggressive, very, very angry, comes around to accepting him and in fact is riding on the back of the trash truck uh, at the end of the movie kind of this joyful celebration of you know togetherness on music lots of fourish music through it there's the nico cover of uh, jackson brown's these days which is you know just the most melancholic fourish song i you know may have ever heard right music is a big thing in his movies right rushmore was all British invasion songs that were kind of, you know, quirky and, and unusual. 
yes, deep cuts, absolutely. And and as were the songs in this movie, right? I mean, you, you know, These Days is a song that some people might know, but most people won't be familiar with the Nico cover of it, right? Nico, the, what was she, a German singer? Model. Was with, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, model singer who was with the Velvet Underground in the 60s for a couple of years. Very obscure sort of stuff. I think there's also... Oh, shoot. Who was the one that was married to Serge Gainsbourg? Birkin? Jane Birkin, maybe? Jane Birkin? Anyway, a very obscure music uh, comes comes through this. There's also Nick Drake. There's the music of Eric yeah. Satini. There's songs from the Charlie Brown Christmas special, which occur in a yes. number of his movies. Yes. Which is really yes. interesting to think yes. of that as, first of all, Charlie Brown yes. as you know, a children's character, a cartoon character who's depressed. That's the central feature of him. And that the music from the Charlie Brown Christmas special is really sad. It's some of the only sad Christmas music yes. you'll ever find. And he uses it yes. repeatedly. And then in the scene yeah, when Royal is taking his grandsons out pranking, the song that they play is Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard, Paul Simon, another four. <laughs> a famous song, but at the same time, if you're going to have a joyful song, let's get a joyful song by a four. Because there's still yes. even a note of sadness, even in Paul Simon's joy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just back to the Charlie Brown music. It was the Vince Giraldi Christmas uh, music, the great jazz piano player who died a couple of years ago. But honestly, it's the only Christmas music I can listen to is that uh, that soundtrack, quite frankly. But uh, it's one of my favorites. And Nick Drake, boy, oh, boy, a four-ish character there. Uh, suicide. Oh, yeah. As he felt like a failure and was revitalized by a Volkswagen commercial that played his song Pink Moon that became ubiquitous uh, 15, 20 years ago. But he was not around to, to enjoy his fame, unfortunately. So, again, these themes of loss, heartbreak, lack of appreciation, but this tenderness underneath of it all. In a comedy. Stuff. Yeah, a lot of tragedy. Uh there's another forest thing that shows up in this. I mean, we mentioned already Margot's missing finger is termed by another an obscure singer-songwriter I'm a big fan of. He didn't originate the term, but he's got a song by this title, The Wound That Never Heals. This is a singer-songwriter called Jim White, who I believe is a four as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and okay. uh, the notion of the wound that never heals. There's, there's Margot's finger. There's a BB that's stuck in Chaz's knuckle from when his father shot him during just a family gameplay. And his, they were supposedly on the same team. And his father shot him and then laughed. And that BB was never extracted from his hand. And <laughs> then there's Richie's unrequited love for his sister, which can never be consummated. And then there's Eli, the neighbor's lifelong wish that he was a town and bomb. So everybody's got some fundamental lack yes. that is just there, which fours really go through life feeling like, you know, I'm wounded in some way or I'm different in some way. In Tom Condon's book, The Enneagram Movie and Video Guide, he talks about a lot of movies featuring monsters or people who are malformed being representative of fours, whether it's Dracula or The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Cyrano de Bergerac, is there's something fundamental about me that makes me different and, most crucially, unlovable. And this is just who I am, and that's how it's going to be. A real quick Jim White thing was he made a documentary called Searching for the Wrong-Eyed Jesus, which was just wonderful. And again, you know, I mean, just the title, right? Searching for the Wrong-Eyed Jesus. Holy cow, is that a great four title, okay? But uh, really good documentary if you can find it. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we are the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Okay, so Rushmore, you know, if you haven't seen it, or, 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 
I'm sorry, the Royal Tenenbaums. Yes, thank you. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, rush out to see it. I, I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. And still very accessible. Again, very idiosyncratic, very stylized, but... Uh, still very, very approachable and watchable as, you know, kind of a mainstreamish sort of movie. Okay. Now with our next movie, the Wes Anderson style is becoming more and more clear. Okay. You know, it's, it's becoming, I hate to say this, but almost standard, right? Which is the last thing before we'd want to hear. But, you know, again, you're seeing, uh, okay, well, you know, here we go with Wes Anderson again. But, and I will say, much like your experience with the Royal Tenenbaums, the first time I attempted to watch Moonrise Kingdom, I, I wasn't in the right frame of mind. I watched about 20 minutes of it and just you know, turned it off and never went back to it until you suggested it for this p- podcast. And, I really, really liked this movie. Okay, tell us about Moonrise Kingdom, TJ. So yeah, TJ. Moonrise Kingdom came out in 2012. It debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. It was the opening film there. It takes place on the fictional island of New Penzance in the northeast of the United States. Actually, filmed in Rhode Island. It's an island with no cars. There's only one car. It's the police car. It takes place in 1965. So the two main characters are 12 year olds. There's Sam, who's both an orphan and Cocky Scout, which is a thinly veiled version of the Boy Scouts, but I can imagine the Boy Scouts of America didn't want their brand associated with this film. <laughs> so, And he wouldn't have used the Boy Scouts of America anyway. He had to create <laughs> normal. Scout. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly right. right. But they have the same aesthetic and same priorities as the Boy Scouts. We see their Scoutmaster played by Edward Norton, and he's got his troop, and then there's one Scout who's not there, and that is young Sam. And then when they look in his tent, they find that he has cut a hole in the side and left a map over the side and left a letter of resignation saying, you know, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, but saying I'm not wanted here, so I'm leaving. And then later when, when Edward Norton is calling his scoutmaster and calling the police and saying about this, he does refer to Sam as the least popular member of the group by far. (laughs) So very much a four-ish element, again, designed by a four of nobody likes me. It's just a fact. And adopted. And adopted, yeah. And not only is he adopted, but we find out pretty soon that even his foster parents don't want him. They just say that he's too much of a problem. When the police captain, played by Bruce Willis, calls them up to let him know that he's missing and that they're looking for him, they say, I'm sorry, but we can't invite him back. And they don't really specify why. And from what we see of him and what we see of Susie, who we'll talk about in a second, they both have tempers, but they're not brutal. They're, they're not pyromaniacs. They're not, you know, right. they're not beating their siblings or anything like that. They're a little weird, but they're not bad kids. Right? Yeah. It's like, what's so bad about this 12 year old that even a foster family says, ah, no, thanks. We just rather not have him. So he leaves. And then we also meet young Susie, a 12 year old girl. She's the daughter of two lawyers played by Bill Murray and Francis McDormand. She has three siblings and unsurprisingly, she's the odd one out. She's the only one who doesn't get along. And she and Sam, we find out later, have developed a correspondence and come up with a plan that we will run away and live together in the wilderness. So they do. They execute this plan successfully, and they meet up, and they run away together. So they're pursued by the scoutmaster, Edward Norton, and the rest of the khaki scouts, and they're pursued by the local policeman, Bruce Willis, who's a very kind of sad and lonely policeman who's always listening to Hank Williams movies. They're eventually found. They do successfully get away for a while because Sam, for an unpopular scout, is a really good outdoorsman and is just really practical and very good at what he does. And they're eventually found. They're separated. The parents are furious at what they've done. You know, Bill Murray says, this is, that's the last conversation you will ever have. You will never yeah. see each other again. Yeah. And then the former scoutmates who had rejected Sam suddenly come together and feel sympathy for him and decide to break him out of prison and break Susie out from her family and facilitate their running away. So they do. And they canoe them over to the big scout gathering, which is called the Hullabaloo, which I thought was a really funny variation on the actual term, which is a scout jamboree. And they're married by a character played by Jason Schwartzman, who's a scout master, who's the cousin of one of the scouts, who marries them, even though he admits this is not a legal marriage in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> it's not recognized by the state or the church, right? <laughs> or anyone, anywhere. But they immediately want to marry uh-huh. at 12. Yes. So they do. 
And in the meantime, you know, the framing device of the whole show is a narration done by the actor Bob Balaban, a character actor who's been in many, many movies. Yes. And he talks directly to the camera. Yes. Initially, he gives you just the lowdown of what the island is, of what it comprises of, what it looks like, who the indigenous original occupants were. And then he lets you know, very much like you said before, like a Homeric omniscient narrator, yeah. that a massive storm will strike in three days' time. Yeah. He's like a one-man Greek chorus, right? And like a chorus, he does some, sometimes interact with the lead players, yes. including directing you know, the search party towards where Sam and Susie are eventually found. So that storm does hit, right, as Sam and Susie are escaping from the scout hullabaloo, and everybody hunkers down in the church, and Sam and Susie climb to the spire of the church right as you know, thunder and lightning and rain is pelting down and wind is blasting towards them, and they're ready to jump, possibly to their own deaths when Bruce Willis's character reaches out to them and offers to adopt Sam, which will let him stay on the island. And the character of Social Services, we never find out her name, she's just Social Services, played by Tilda Swinton, shows up and is the looming authority figure who's going to take Sam off to live in what's implied to be a brutal orphanage, allows this, partially because of the intervention of the two lawyer characters who affirm that this would be legal, this would have legal standing, you'd better not mess with the legality of what we want to do. And he adopts Sam, keeps him on the island, and the two of them continue to have their love, but in secret, which is maybe a Fours version of a happily ever after. They're still 12. They're not officially together. He has to sneak into her house so they can be together and then sneak out. Nobody can know, but they love each other and they have this understanding. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things caught my attention about this movie. And, uh, number one, I, I just, again, uh, great understated acting, a, a compelling story, very interesting visuals. Here, because they're on the island, Anderson has some space for some of the shots, right? And he uses it to great effect because rather than these sort of closed-in, you know, scenes that we're used to, in Royal Tannenbaums, there's literally scenes in a closet, right, that, that happened. But now he's got these big fields and the characters are far away from each other very often you know and so but then contrasting that with very tight scenes intense and you know so forth right so one of the things i noticed was how french this movie felt to me right so there was a review i saw here that i want to kind of mention when i was doing a little research and it said the film is frequently funny always elegant or mock elegant and something that would make humbert humbert laugh all the way to his assignment. <laughs> so, Humbert Humbert is the, you know, character in Lolita, right? The man who falls in love with the, what is she, 12-year-old girl. And, you know, to his downfall. So, and for me, there was a little bit of a creepiness in this relationship between the 12 years old. And I mentioned earlier about this, you know, these things that wouldn't happen in today's mindset in films like this, you know, you know, the two of them, the 12 year olds kind of making out and talking about French kissing and that sort of thing. Right. It was, a, you know, it was very French. It felt to me. Right. I mean, it reminded me of, you know, the, the whole premise reminded me of Band of Outsiders. I, I think it was, uh, you know, just this idea of escaping. Right. This idea of getting away of, be, you know, being alone. It also made me start thinking of how much the work of Jacques Demy must have influenced Wes Anderson. I'm not sure if you've ever seen The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, right? Yeah. I started watching it again last night while I was doing something else. It's a musical from the 1960s where it's one of the few movies that I see and I say, oh, that's Wes Anderson, right? The color palette was just boom, right? And oddly enough, this morning I was doing a little research to see if there was a connection between the two of them, and a reviewer for the Hollywood Reporter reviewing Wes Anderson's new movie, which is called The French Dispatch, was saying Anderson has never said that he was, you know, inspired by Jacques Demy, but his musicals are all over it. So you, you might want to check him out. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is uh, his most famous movie. Uh, so you see in here, Anderson is starting to turn his attention to other cultures in a way, right? We see this in the Grand Budapest Hotel and and uh, Isle of Dogs is, is in Japan and, you know, that sort of thing. So there's a turn of direction here again toward the exotic, 
which is a very forest sort of thing. There are these things that are sophisticated, you know, French film is, is very sophisticated that, you know, way, uh, supposedly. Let's see what else caught my attention here. Oh, oh, yeah. The, there's the scene when the storm is coming in, and this is the other thing, right? So this movie starts three days before a storm is about to come, the biggest storm in you know in the century or something like that. And so they have to find these kids, not only because the kids have run off, but because there's this huge storm coming. And when the storm starts to hit, Bill Murray, who plays the girl's father, and uh, Frances McDormand, who plays the mother, are lying in bed. And Bill Murray says, I hope the roof flies off and sucks me into space. Okay? And Francis McDormand says to him, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And his response is, why? <laughs> and she says, <laughs> she says, talking about the kids, we're all they've got. Right? And his response is, that's not enough. And that just broke my heart, right? Because you could see the sadness and desperation in this character. This father who's just trying to do right for his kids, not a great father by any stretch. And in fact, the one getting in the way of his daughter's true love. But you just see this pain in this character that, again, kind of hits you by surprise because the acting is so, I'll use the word carefully, but flat, right? I mean, it's purposely toned down on the affect in the acting. And it makes those moments all the more powerful, I think. Yeah, it's a very subtle performance. You know, he's not, it's a supporting role. It's definitely not a Bill Murray movie. And he's not doing anything that would make anybody think, oh, remember that moment when Bill Murray did that in, in that funny way? But yeah, he's wonderful in it. Another moment that really jumped out for me is when we find out what Susie has brought, what her supplies are as they run away. So at one point, they do an inventory of what she's brought with her. And for one thing, she's wearing a dress. And what a couple <laughs> of characters refer to as Sunday shoes. So not necessarily practical for tromping through the woods. Uh, she's also wearing makeup, which I found out the actor had done herself. And she oh, wow. doesn't look like a little kid who's too young to be wearing makeup. I mean, she does look like a 12-year-old kid. But this is something my partner, Lindsay, actually experienced herself when she was, I think, maybe 9 or 10. Because a lot of women have the experience of the time that they got into their mother or their grandmother's makeup kit when nobody was watching and then they put on makeup, but they probably overdid it in a really big way. What happened with Lindsay is, she got into it and then put on the makeup. And then when her mother and grandmother found her, they realized, oh, she actually really knows what she's doing. Like right away, uh -huh. she was able to put on the kind of makeup that was like appropriate to her look. So there's that. She brought along a portable record player and a record of a yes. French singer. So in the scene that you mentioned yes. before, when yes. they're making out, they're listening to a French song as they do it. Yes. She's brought yes. along a suitcase of fantasy novels that she stole from the library. And the only reason she didn't bring all of her novels was because the suitcase was too heavy. She's brought her kitten in a, in a carrying case and a cat and a, you know, like 10 tins of cat food. And then finally she brought a pamphlet that she found on the family refrigerator, which can't remember the phrasing completely, but the, the gist of it is how to deal with a difficult child. And <laughs> this is something Wes Anderson found on his own family fridge when he was a youngster and knew immediately that it referred to himself. And when Susie shows this to Sam, he laughs just a little bit, and she immediately gets offended. And she goes into the tent and pouts and cries, and he comes in and apologizes. So again, it's a beautifully fourish character. I think Susie is one of the great fours, in, in not only in Wes Anderson's body of work, but in film in general. Yeah. But just that sense of, like, I'm broken. I'm flawed. And if somebody yes. makes fun of me for that sense of that, that is going to hurt me more than anything, particularly yes. if that comes from my beloved of even you don't understand me, even yes, you don't yes. get that my pain is real. How dare you? And yes. of course, the, the roles on that are reversed when later there's a scene where they're camping on the beach and she expresses admiration for the fact that he's an orphan, saying that she all of her favorite characters are orphans and that you know your lives are more interesting. And he looks at her and he says, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. And of course, the part that she responds to, she says, I love you too. But again, there's that sense from him of like, you don't know what it's actually like to be an orphan. You don't know what it's like to feel this particular right. pain. 
you feel like an orphan, but you actually have parents and siblings in a home. I don't. My parents died, and I'm in a foster home, and he doesn't know this at this point, but even his foster family doesn't want him. And there's a tremendous bond, and we see this in a number of the things. I mean, in Rushmore, the first conversation that Max has with Miss Cross, it comes out that she's a widow and that that his mother died of cancer. There's this bond of shared sadness and tragedy. So that's very much a part of Susie and Sam's relationship in this movie. Yes. Yes. And at some point they show, I I think it was in Rushmore, they show the tombstone of his mother. And it says, the pathos of glory led her to the grave. I mean, it's just like... And there's also the scene, and you alluded to this when in the Royal Tannenbaum's, they go to visit Royal's mother, I think it is, and his son's dead wife is there also. And when the son says, I want to go visit, you know, her grave, <laughs> Royal says, oh, that's right, we have another body here. And he gives them half of the flowers that he brought. <laughs> <laughs> oh my okay yeah so themes of abandonment abound in wes anderson's either through lack of understanding lack of appreciation through fleeing or through death and the royal tannenbaum's one of the concluding moments is showing royal's grave you know he dies not too long after the events of the movie yes. and they give him the epitaph that he'd wanted which is that he died saving his family from a destroyed burning battleship <laughs> <laughs> no basis in reality whatsoever, but pretty good sounding. Makes him sound really heroic and unique. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So let's go to our final movie here, The Isle of Dogs. Again, this is not, uh, I had not seen this movie. You know, I I have a flaw in my taste when it comes to animated movies. You know, I think it's maybe watching too many of them when I had kids. And, you know, I still have kids. But when my kids were younger and I went through a period where all I watched were animated movies, you know, so I, I missed, you know, some. So I had not seen this. But boy, oh boy, did I love it, right? I mean, for me, this was the highlight of this activity because getting to watch this movie for the first time. And uh, for me, hmm, let's see, well, I'll get into why I love it in a moment, but let me talk about it. So it was released in 2014. Very good reviews. We haven't talked about the reviews, but all of the movies that we've talked about have been very well reviewed on Rotten Tomatoes and others. And it was a pretty successful movie, too. I don't know what the budget was, but it made $64 million. So uh, I think Rushmore broke even, made a little bit of money, perhaps. And, you know, and again, some of those other movies became more successful. But it takes place in the future in a dystopian Japan, a virus spreads among dogs. It first starts off talking about how cats used to be the sort of favored animal in the kingdom. And then there was an uprising, you know, cats were dominating. And then, you know, the dogs and their advocates rose up. And, you know, they became, they kind of kicked the cats out of the kingdom. And then dogs became the favored animals. But then this virus came up. And a lot of it was kind of manufactured. A lot of it was kind of blown out of proportion. And it was the mayor of the mega city who is conspiring to get rid of the dogs. They may have explained why I didn't quite catch it, right? I'm not quite sure why they wanted to get rid of the dogs, whether it was an uprising of the cats or whatever. But a lot of it had to do with the desire to replace them with mechanical dogs, robot dogs, which was, you know, could have been kind of a money-making activity as well, right? So they decide they're going to take these dogs and put them all on what to that point had been garbage island right where they put all the garbage and so the dogs are left to survive 
Now, there's a little boy who is the adopted son of the mayor. Okay, and TJ, did you catch exactly who the boy was and what his relationship to the mayor was? I kind of missed it when I was watching it. Yeah, he was a nephew a few degrees removed. And the story was that his parents had died in a train crash. So again, you've got an orphan, you've got tragedy. Yes. Ticking all the boxes yet again. Exactly right, okay? And when he is adopted by the mayor, he is assigned a guard dog, right? This is before the dogs were banished, and he developed a very close relationship with the dog. They even had these little ear things that they could speak to each other in, right? So the dog could hear him and respond to his needs. When the dogs are banished, the little boy steals a plane, very reminiscent of the little prince in a way here, and crash lands on on the island and goes in search of his dog, okay, who had, you know, befriended other dogs eventually, right? I mean, he was uh, locked in a cage, and at first he had heard that the other dogs were cannibal dogs and that they were going to eat him, but they find out that, you know, the dogs are actually friendly. They all sort of band together. The boy lands, goes looking for his dog's spot, walks around for a big part of the movie with a piece of metal sticking out of his head from the plane crash, right? That he couldn't quite get out. A wound that never heals. Yeah, A wound that never heals, right? And the mayor sends his henchmen and the robot dogs to go find Atari, the little boy, and to kill all the dogs. Okay, but Atari eventually finds his dog. They, you know, manage to defend themselves against the killer dogs. All the while, there are people searching, you know, standing up for the dogs, searching for a cure, a, a vaccination that will counteract the virus. They can bring the dogs back. You know, so they do eventually come back. They are all saved by the vaccination. Just a note, please go out and get vaccinated if you are not. But, we'll, you know, we'll set that aside for now. <laughs> okay, so I just lost half the listeners in the U.S. But, uh, <laughs> and good riddance to them. No, yeah, good riddance. Yeah, actually, I think our listeners are pro-vaccine. But anyway, so uh, let's not digress. Um, so the... <laughs> so... They live happily ever after, you know, but again, a movie tinged with loss and sadness, right, Uh, with darkness, very studied. Again, you see even more controlled because it's animated, right? So, you know, it's almost as if this is Wes Anderson's dream stage, right? I get to actually draw it. The characters are stop motion characters you know and so again you know like i said before you can see the hair movements and all this stuff which adds kind of a i'll say a heightened sense of aliveness to the dogs right and this is one of the things that struck me in this movie it's this fight against the replacement of reality of live worthwhile creatures with soulless robots Right. Which is the four's biggest fear, right, of, you know, of losing their individuality, their animus in in a sense, right, of who they are. So there was that theme. Now, we see other themes through here, right? I mean, so we talked about sort of the French influences we saw earlier. This is very, very heavily influenced by Japanese culture, Japanese film. Kurosawa fingerprints are all over this movie. Hayao Miyazaki. Zaki fingerprints are all over this movie. You see, you know, lots of the aesthetic of the Japanese woodcuts are through this. Even I think some of the music, you know, I'd have to go back and listen again, but I'm pretty sure that some of that music was lifted right out of The Seven Samurai. It was. Yeah, you're 100% right. It was. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was listening to certain scenes and I said, yeah, this is, this is The Seven Samurai. No coincidence. Yeah, and so there's even kind of a Seven Samurai theme of this group banding together to fight, you know, the enemy, you know, kind of following the leader and, you know, collecting these misfits along the way, you know, as, as we see in, in the Seven Samurai. So, so for me, this movie, you know, it was compelling emotionally, right? You know, it was, a, you know, a fun and interesting story, visually wonderful. I'm not somebody who will 
you know, value a movie only because of the aesthetic sense of it, right? I mean, it's got to have a good story. It's got to be compelling. It's got to move me in some way emotionally. This one did. The tenderness of the relationship between the boy and his dog is, you know, was really quite affecting. And it's funny because it's almost a stereotype in storytelling, like the easiest story to tell, to manipulate people emotionally is a story about a boy and his dog, right? You know, that's kind of a a cliche. And yet this worked, right? I mean, it was about this boy trying to find his dog, the dog's desire to be reunited, the dog's feeling of conflict between his love and affection for his owner, but his sense of responsibility to his fellow dogs, right? Let's see what else comes in here. Well, part of that, too, is, is that it isn't simply, like, the relationship between the, the boy and the dog that he lost and he's searching for is briefly dealt with in the movie, because for the most of that movie, we don't see that dog. You know, we eventually find him. But when he crash lands, the dogs that find him there, they all have names that imply they're an alpha dog. There's Rex, there's King, there's uh, <laughs> Boss. Yeah. And then the yeah. main dog, who he eventually bonds with is called chief and that's voiced by the great actor brian cranston and chief is all black and he strongly identifies as a stray and i think the enneagram type of that character again probably is another eight he's Mm -hmm. powerful he's tough he rejects the notion of having masters he says i don't sit i don't (laughs) he doesn't want love he doesn't want a relationship he wants independence and control Yes. And one of the few times he was captured and adopted, he said he bit the hand of the boy who tried to pet him so hard that the hand almost yes. had to be removed uh, yes. because that's just who he is. So, And he couldn't explain why. Right? Yeah. And they, why did you do that? He couldn't explain why he did it. Yeah. So, yeah. So he's this big, tough, powerful dog. I don't want love. I don't want responsibility. I don't want a human master. And then just through chance circumstance, he and the boy get paired together as the rest of the dogs get separated. And then, little by little, they start to grow close. And there's a scene when, when the boy bathed the dog, and it turns out he's not actually black. His yes. fur is mostly white. It's just he was so dirty yes. and so uncared for for so long he didn't know. And then the boy gives him a treat called a puppy snap. It's a little dog biscuit. And Chief has never had one before. And as he bites it, he describes the taste of it and then immediately says, this is my new favorite food. Yes. And little by yes. little comes to love him. And when they finally do reunite with the boy's original dog, uh, spots spots reveals that he does have this responsibility to the other dogs and then he asks chief who turns out to be his litter mate and youngest brother yes. if he will assume the responsibility of being atari's yes. dog and being loyal to him and protecting him and there's this beautiful tender moment where you see chief just his big sensitive eyes and he accepts this and it's this moment of like i've gone through my whole life rejecting love and connection and now I'm opening. And there's, yes. a, there's a strong parallel to the Bruce Willis character in, uh, in Moonrise Kingdom in that we don't know too much about him as a character. It's hard to know what type he is. But he's a yeah. police officer, and he's a good one, and he's you know, completely comfortable being in charge. But he's always listening to Hank Williams' music. And it comes out in a conversation between him and Sam that he loved the woman, and the woman didn't love him back. And that's all you find out about him. But that's the moment where you really see, and again, this is another form of catnip for a four, is like, oh, somebody's sadness, somebody's open, tender heart, no matter what type they are. But it's like, now I'm seeing the real person. Now I'm seeing the tragedy and the sensitivity and the love in your heart and the rejected love. Now I get you and you get me, and now we can really love each other. So that's Chief's journey as a character, and he's the main character of the movie, if there is one. It's the opening of the heart of this tough dog, this tough eight, who just eventually reveals, as you know, I'm sure you can speak to this, that eights, for all their power and toughness, are actually very sensitive. And if you get close to an eight, you'll find out just how loving and tender that they are. But they don't show it to everybody. When they do, right. it's a big deal. Right. Right. So for an eight, just to touch on that topic, showing that is an investment in the other person. And they invest very carefully because once you are part of my world, I am responsible for you. You know, it's that old, you know, thing about in some cultures, if you save somebody's life, then you have to take care of them right from there on out. And eight sort of think that way. Right. So if I let you in, 
then anytime there's a problem for you, I'm going to be the one there for it. And, you know, I, I can't give that out lightly. You know, so there is this element and it's not, you know, a lot of people think eights are afraid of being vulnerable and all this sort of stuff. And I'm not going to get into that debate, but a lot of eights won't really resonate with that. It's just, it's this awareness of the need to be strong very often because other people are expecting you to be strong for them. Right. And so I only share that, you know, uh, carefully. And if I expose the vulnerability, it means that I have to now, you know, take responsibility for you. Right to the uh, end. Yes. Right. So, but yeah, so it's interesting again, when, you know, they clean off chief and find out that he is actually a white dog with spots, kind of like the Dalmatian mice from the Royal Tenenbaums, right? Which, you know, kept walking through the movie every so often, okay? And so other things here, again, I mentioned before about the storytelling and meta meta storytelling here, and it happens through interpreters periodically, not all the time, because most of the dialogue between people is in Japanese, right? The dogs speak English, the, the, the humans speak Japanese, except for the occasional translator, who is usually either an interpreter for some formal meeting or a broadcaster of some sort, who is kind of giving you the story again. So it's, it's a, a fourth storytelling device that we see in the four movies that we've talked about so far today. Okay. There's also a, just a backstory given by one of the dogs voiced by F. Murray Abraham at the top of the movie. So he tells the story of the relationship between dogs and cats in Japan and how they were eventually rejected just because of the preference of the ruling family at the time. And he's yes. looking right at the camera as he's telling you this story. It's not just voiceover. It is a puppet of a dog whose mouth is moving telling you this. Yes. And then some of the soundtrack music too. There's taiko drumming and we see stop motion figures of Tycho drummers drumming. And a yes. detail that I noticed is that you can see a basketball hoop in the background of where the Tycho drummers are as if he set this in a high school gymnasium for no particular reason. Oh, interesting. Just, he didn't have Very to, he constructed it, but he gave them a real place <laughs> to be just because. <laughs> oh man. All right. So uh, other things again that we see through here is the, you know, again, the mannered and very detailed background. Still, we see a lot of the centering frames, right, uh, where, you know, when the dogs are talking or people are talking, they're right flat in the middle of a frame. Again, that's sort of a flat background that we see drawing you in. And, you know, I, I've only been to Japan once, and I think I was there for about 36 hours, and I would never say that any culture is, you know, all one type or another, but there's a whole lot of four going on in Japanese culture in a lot of ways, right? So with the aesthetic of wabi-sabi and shibumi and, you know, some of the other Japanese, there's kind of the Zen aesthetic is very four-ish for me. For me, Japanese culture is about as foreign to my mindset as we could be. I'm fascinated by Japanese culture, Japanese philosophy, Japanese aesthetics, but culturally, it's just a really, 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 really different place, right? So again, the perfect place for a four from the United States to make a movie is in Japan, right? As we saw with Lost in Translation. Something Russ Hudson said once, specifically referring to navigating fours or social fours in his terminology, is that they're very often expats. Yes. If, if I'm conspicuously yes. the foreigner in the country where I am, then I'm just different right away. All you have to do is glance yes. at me to know that. And if you're a yes. four, that's a good thing. Yes. Particularly if I'm not a crass tourist. But if I'm walking yes. through this as someone with taste and aesthetic sense of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see the good things. I'm going to partake in the good things. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I would go even further and say that navigating fours are expats in their own homes uh, very often, right? Again, it gets this fourish thing of I don't belong here. But one of the fi- things I find with navigating fours is that I don't belong here and I don't want to be here. I'm going to go see what else is out there in in the world. So whereas the preserving four loves their home, loves their environment, you know, that takes refuge in it, the navigating four almost wants to get away, right, Uh, in, in the way that you're describing. So, all right. So four movies about the type four. Something else about the yeah, Isle of Dogs? One more thing I want to say about Isle of Dogs is that the big four theme that I found in this movie is there's how much beauty there is in the rejected. 
So the dogs are exiled to an island of garbage, which you'd think would be the least beautiful and appealing place there is. But the way it's arranged, because it's a stop-motion film, so they can arrange whatever they want in the way it's filmed, there's incredible beauty because this island doesn't just have garbage, but even the parts that are garbage are quite beautiful. You know, there's one scene where they're in a cavern of colored bottles that are all the colors of the rainbow. It's a real feast for the eyes. There's other scenes where you can see the ruins of industrial works and of a theme park in the background. And as a four, one of my predilections, and I've talked about this in one of my monologues on stage, I love seeing photos that are shared online of abandoned, derelict hotels and theme parks and shopping malls. <laughs> There's such beauty in the destruction yeah. of it. And I once did a road trip from Southern Illinois to Arkansas on a minor highway. So it wasn't an interstate. You could actually see where people lived. And I kept seeing collapsed trailer homes. And every time I would go by, I was in the passenger seat. I, my eyes would just be glued to the window of like, look at that. That's beautiful. Nobody else thinks that it's beautiful, but I do. So there's that with the island itself, and there's that with the dogs themselves, because the dogs are rejected. They're the despised yes. group, and they're presented to us as main characters, as individuals. You know, each of the dogs in the main group of dogs that accompanies Atari on his quest, they each have their own backstory. They each have their own personality. Yes. There's a conversation yeah. about what their favorite foods are. They have their, you know, they're not uniform dogs by any means. And right. then they're scared, as you mentioned, of the original indigenous inhabitants of this island, which are said to be cannibals, but when we find them, we find out. So, so those dogs are the rejected of the rejected, these supposed cannibal dogs, and when we meet them, their leader, voiced by Harvey Keitel, tells the story of who they really are, which is that they were experimented on. They were lab dogs. So many of them are malformed in some way. They might be missing a limb or missing an eye, or they've got scars on them or missing patches of fur, and they're diseased, and that they did have to eat one dog. They put him out of his misery, and that they howl with anguish, as they mentioned, yes. that they're so sad yes. at having had to do that. And, of course, they're starving. They're just getting by, and they save the main characters. They don't eat them. They don't attack them. They don't bother them at all. They bring them in, and they help them. As if to say yes. there's not only beauty in the rejected, but there's beauty in the rejected of the rejected, and there's integrity in them, too. We're the yes. misfits, and we will accept anyone who's rejected, anyone who's despised, yes. anyone who's cursed and unwanted. We get it. So come yes. and live with us. Yes. The story of the cannibalism that they talked about, it was emotionally moving, right? Sad. You, you know, you could feel the howling. You could feel a part of yourself howling inside. Yeah, I, I was immediately placed into that position, right? And Again, it, it, it came out of nowhere, almost, emotionally, right? Because you're watching this movie, and okay, it's interesting, you know, you kind of, I am kind of caught in the, you know, the aesthetics, the construction of the movie. You feel almost a slight emotional detachment from it, and then all of a sudden, bam, you get hit right in the heart with something, right? Which happens in all of these movies, right? All, all of these movies. It's you're expecting this to be, okay, I'm, I'm not being touched here. These are, you know, not emotional characters. And then, boom, right? You, you get it right in, the, right in the chest. So, very, very touching stuff. All right, great. So, uh, again, four movies about type four, Wes Anderson. Highly, highly recommend these movies. You know, I have not seen all of Wes Anderson's movies. The ones I have seen, I've really, really liked. And this has inspired me to go and pick up uh, you know, watch some of the ones that I haven't seen yet. So uh, thank you, it's, uh, TJ. You suggested Wes Anderson for Type 4. Really, really good call. And so any any other closing comments you would make, TJ? Yeah, I would highly recommend watching The Grand Budapest Hotel. I think, yeah. you know, he takes it even further than in Moonrise Kingdom in terms of his creating the environment, manipulating the environment, painting it in vivid colors. The main character in that, played by Rafe Fiennes, is the hotel concierge, and I'm pretty sure he's a four who just wants everything to be exactly up to his very high standards. And then Bottle Rocket. We mentioned Bottle Rocket before. Yes. When I reached out to that friend who knew Wes Anderson personally, I asked him, again, not trying to lead him to any given place, which character from any of his movies he thought was most like the actual Wes Anderson. And again, here's his answer. He says, He's like Owen Wilson's character from Bottle Rocket if that character also had Luke Wilson's character's overarching kindness, 
quietness and gentle way of moving through the world. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. that movie is wonderful to watch and you can see the seeds of many of his ideas and aesthetics that then played out through the rest of his career. And you can also watch the original short that's on YouTube. The original 12 minute oh. black and white bottle rocket is available to watch. Yeah. So you can see a very young Owen and Luke Wilson in that. And yeah. the very young sensibilities of Wes Anderson just playing and discovering. And yeah, yeah I love his stuff. Can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. Great, great. So we'll have a, a lot of these references in the show notes. There were some really good things I found talking about Wes Anderson and his aesthetic online uh, that'll be in the show notes. And we'll be sure to add those other movies as other references. So TJ, thanks again for the conversation. This was fun, and we covered a whole lot of ground here. We talked an awful lot about Type 4. Uh, join us next time for the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Thanks, TJ. Thank See you, you so much. Wonderful to be a part of this. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.